So if I meet my next door neighbor, I mean, it's probably no point to them talking about quantum mechanics of consciousness, but I can say, a bit nippy outside, isn't it? And they can say, yeah. Welcome to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. My name is Dave Mons. I'm a student of psychology and philosophy and a professional pilot. My aim is to share big ideas from science and the humanities to get you thinking and to help you make sense of the world. Hi, joining me today is Dr. Trevor Harley. Dr. Harley is an Emeritus Professor of Psychology at the University of Dundee in Scotland, where he served as the Dean of the Psychology Department, among other leadership roles, from 2003 until 2014. His specialty is cognitive psychology. Although he has authored works on a range of topics, from the best-selling textbook The Psychology of Language and its gentler version Talking the Talk, to The Psychology of Weather. He has also written two novels, and his textbook on consciousness is about to be released. Dr. Harley's interests are wide-ranging, from history, ageing and the nature of consciousness, to artificial intelligence and what it means for the future. Yet despite all of his academic and personal achievements, Dr. Harley has battled mental illness for much of his life. He maintains a blog in which he openly shares his experience of living with depression, anxiety and obsessive-compulsive disorder. He's passionate about destigmatizing mental health and is a living example of how such challenges needn't limit what one can achieve in life. It was an honor and a privilege to speak with Dr. Harley, and he's precisely the type of guest that I've been looking to have on the podcast since it began over 12 months ago. Anyway, enough from me. Here's the conversation. And you're obviously working on the, the book on uh, consciousness at the moment, which is that's um, fascinating. Finished, yeah, that's finished. It's done? That's done. It's in press. It's coming out in, well, any day, any day now. It's available for pre-order on Amazon. It's got the cover and the reviews. It's all, yeah, it's all great. ready. Well done. I'm now working on a book, another book on weather and behaviour, and okay. it's it's more to do with the, it's more of a popular book, and it's more to do with the beauty of nature and how that inspires people and how it helps their mental health, and how yeah. the weather particularly is something we overlook, and which can be both scientific and aesthetic interest. So that's what I'm working on right now. Yeah, that's fascinating. I think there's a, a lot of crossover with psychology and philosophy in the sense that we sort of reach the the sort of intangible limits of, say, what we can study through fMRI or um, more contrived sort of uh, experimental settings. And as soon as we start getting into this realm of the the consciousness, the uh, the the arts and aesthetics, um, it's fascinating. And scientists can often start to look at their feet; they get uncomfortable in that space. I agree. Nice to tackle it um, in a pragmatic. Yes, and I do often think science has reached a limit when it comes to consciousness. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you that question a bit later, but I guess it's just yeah. as appropriate to ask you now. This is what I mean. I sort of just end up going off on a bit of a tangent, but um, I guess that's all fresh in your mind, having spent so many months and possibly even years, um, years. putting this work yes. together. Yeah, yes. and and being sort of so say, au fait with the material now and, and the present state of the art, as it were, of um, the study of consciousness. And I was just looking actually at the chapter list um, for the book um, before, and it covers so many of these concepts which have become quite popularised of late, it would seem. Um, Anil Seth and all of these guys that have really become sort of quite 
um, well-known science communicators sharing their thoughts on consciousness. And I'm wondering, um, you sort of almost answered the question before, how do you think that we've almost reached a limit in what we can really uncover in terms of the nature of consciousness? Or obviously we're scratching the surface in terms of our explanations for it. But how far can we go theoretically with understanding that? I think we have reached a limit at the moment. And in a way, we haven't made much progress with consciousness other than to realise mm. we've reached a limit. And a lot of people would disagree with that as well. Mm. Uh, you might be familiar with Ch Chalmers' idea about the hard problem of consciousness. Yes, of course. Problem. Yeah. And there's also the idea about uh, access consciousness and phenomenal consciousness of block. But they all come down to the basic idea that like my book on consciousness has got stuff on dreams, attention, hypnosis, altered states of consciousness, drugs, visual illusions, cognitive psychology. But mm. in some respects, they're all at the edges of the problem of consciousness. The real problem mm. of consciousness is the phenomenon, why does it feel like something to be me? What does it mm. mean to be awake and perceiving the world and to be aware? That's the hard problem. We've made a lot of problem, a lot of progress with the, these easy problems, but I don't mm. think we've made much progress at all with the, the hard problem, the aspect of what mm. it feels like to be me. Uh, lots of people like Dennett would disagree, but I think mm. we have... We have reached the limit. There, there's the Mysterian view that maybe consciousness is too, just too complicated a problem for humans to understand in the same way that my Poodle just has no conception of what reading is. And there's no way that his brain is going to understand it. He's very good at understanding commands, but the actual meta-level understanding of what's going on, it's just beyond his capacity. And perhaps mm. consciousness is like that too. I hope not, but we do mm. seem to have ground to a halt in understanding it. And mm. I think it's going to take a radical re-understanding of something for that to change. Mm. As you probably know, there are lots of physicists who think they understand consciousness and can explain it in terms of quantum mechanics or multiple mm. worlds or something. I I don't know how plausible they are. No one seems to, there's no universal acceptance of those ideas for a start, which mm. doesn't necessarily mean they're wrong, but it's a little bit worrying that no one, there's no consensus emerging at all. But it does make me think that we are at the edges now and something major will have to change. The way you're speaking of it and, and the hard problem and the reading I've been doing on language to sort of seg into that a little bit, there does seem to be quite a lot of analogue between the study of language and certainly its origins and consciousness in the sense that we really have no, like in, in different scientific um, methodologies or, or maybe the methodology is the same, but the way we tackle the problem is different, of course, but the limited amount of information we have and can have access to seems to be in common between them in terms of um, the question is similar. Did we acquire language over 
a very long period of time, let's say millions of years in very slow, gradual stages and awakening of language. Um, and was consciousness something that ran in parallel to that? So there wasn't this moment in time when the lights turned on, just like, um, say, Chomsky says Prometheus one day was born with a mutation and just started speaking, you know. Is, was consciousness something that's happened across a long period of time? And we see the remnants of that in the animal kingdom. Yes, but I don't think... And consciousness is slightly different from the evolution of language because with consciousness we have... We seem to have a lot of data to hand. Nothing is more accessible than personal information about our mm. own consciousness. The problem with the evolution of language is that the data truly are lost in time, and it's unlikely that we'll find much more. There's some archaeological evidence, and there's the fossil evidence about the development of the skull and mm. the throat. But the problem there is we, there just isn't enough. So a lot of it is mm. speculative. Mm. I don't see consciousness the emergence of consciousness or language as discrete events and i don't see that they're that closely intertwined that closely related they're intertwined but it's not like acquiring language cause consciousness mm. it's clear when i look at Bo, mine's poodle that he is very very mm. conscious but he doesn't have mm. language and he knows the names of a few toys but he doesn't have the ability to create syntactically complex sentences or use words in multiple contexts. Mm. So I think the evolution of consciousness is something which has taken place over millions of years. And it is a bit speculative about which animals possess consciousness. Mm. There are various tests like mirror tests, when, where does an animal rec truly recognise mm. itself in a mirror? There's the famous experiment with Gardner with putting a chimpanzee with a red spot on its forehead and seeing if no one mm. tries to touch its forehead in, when it sees its reflection in the mirror. And similarly, dogs, perhaps less visual, but there's a, there's a corresponding experiment with sense. And it, it's clear that consciousness is useful for social tasks that animals that live in herds or packs like chimpanzees it's useful for them to have a model of what other animals are thinking and consciousness seems to be related to that so consciousness is something that emerged over millions of years <clears throat> even when i look at the birds outside i think it, it seems obvious to me that i think some would disagree that the birds possess some basic awareness some basic consciousness and how far down you go i don't know it's a matter of debate if you ask every year i ask students what animals they thought are conscious and the limit seems to be something where between a prawn and a fish okay. they think that you know, some and there is a lot of work on pain mm. in fish and it's clear that they f they feel pain that's a bit abstract as to what that actually means but they do respond in a way they're not just suggest that they, they are avoiding aversive stimuli but actually are uncomfortable and feel some distress and it's difficult to imagine that happening without some basic awareness so somewhere between a prawn and a fish things are conscious so that is millions of years hundreds of millions mm. of years language does seem to be restricted 
in its full complexity spontaneously to humans and it's something that's just emerged over the last few hundred thousand years and there's it's very difficult to imagine something being have, using language in the way that we do and not being conscious i know that there are computer programs that are look as though they're quite sophisticated with the use of language but they're not really so i think you can't imagine things talking and talking about their feelings without being conscious but you can have it the other way around and i think there's no doubt that possessing language uh, refines our sense of consciousness and awareness because we have a sense we have a self symbol we can talk about i and me and distinguish us mm. from others and I think little Bo doesn't possess that rich symbolic system and life for him is different. I guess that's the, the feedback mechanism that maybe I'm getting at in terms of the parallels with consciousness, that when you have the ability to articulate the way that you are feeling the, or the experience that you are having or indeed your perception of others' experiences, then does that inform your consciousness in terms of, say, a, a bottom-up or a top-down approach that you could have the very fact of language uh, is enabling a certain awareness which you wouldn't otherwise have unless you were able to articulate it with the recursive language that we have? Yes, I think that's right. I think that there are concepts that would be very difficult to express without language. And as you say, it, it is interactive and recursive. I don't think either bottom-up or top-down is correct. There's the, there's the interaction between both. As you might know, that Chomsky has uh, always has stepped back over the years over what he thinks is the essential part of language, the bit of universal grammar that really distinguishes humans and human language from other animals. And for him, it is recursion this ability mm. to talk about things at multiple levels. And in a way, that's related to consciousness too. What, so the important aspect of consciousness for humans that perhaps does distinguish us from animals, again, is the self-symbol and being able to think about that. I can think about I. I can think about me thinking about I and me thinking about me. And that's a recurs mm. recursive pattern. And that mm. does seem to be uniquely human. Mm. Yeah. Um, the One of the questions I posed to you earlier was um, this idea that there's something I've been trying to express in some of the writing I'm doing for this podcast is when we think of the way that we communicate and we talk and it just comes naturally to us, we just blurt the stuff out. We don't spend time wondering about how we're going to do it. It's as natural to us as breathing. Yet, whether it's looking at the evolved speech apparatus and the descent of the larynx and um, the fine muscle control and the breathing coordination, um, the access to memory and all of the many cognitive and physical features that allow us to do this effortless thing, uh, it seems to cover so many um, different disciplines and uh, in terms of culture and what we're drawing on to be able to converse in this way from our language, our, our grammar, um, there's so many components, and I think that's something that's intrigued me about my exploration of this study of language so far, 
is the interdisciplinary nature of it. You've got um, anthropologists who are putting their um, two cents worth in. You've got cognitive psychologists, obviously, even evolutionary anthropologists and psychologists and everyone in between. And so this idea of, say, just uh, language being the domain of the linguist is quite narrow and almost quaint. And I wonder, has there, when I see this broad range of theories and uh, the way they sort of catch some bits and leave out others and um, try to reconcile, uh, it almost seems as though, as is probably relevant for many scientific disciplines, the siloing of them means that we're not able to really capitalize on the synergy of all of this brain power and all of these different perspectives that can give us a more coherent or cohesive uh, understanding of the nature of language. Um, how do you feel about that? I agree. I think the siloing of science, well, more than that, siloing of knowledge, mm. is it's a great shame. And it's one of, if I could just digress for a moment, it's clear that the function of university is changing, that the traditional model of going to lectures and tutorials in one discipline for three years is changing. I think COVID has accelerated that process because most students don't go to lectures anymore. Everything's online and online is clearly going to be cheaper. So I can see the structure of universities changing. And in the same way at school, I have some sympathy with children say, what's the point of doing learning this what's the point of learning the names of the kings and queens of england <laughs> when we can just look it up online yeah. or why know our times table when we've got our calculator that's right i think the function of education in general has to change and has to shift from imparting knowledge in disciplines to teaching people how to understand how to access knowledge and how to manipulate it. Mm. And that means going, teaching and educating beyond narrow disciplines. And that would continue at university too. I think part of the problem of why so many students emerge disenchanted with education is they've spent three years learning something very narrow and most of it isn't gonna be of much use for them at all mm. in the future. And the useful things they've learned are how to do things, how to do statistics, how to write, how to evaluate. And in general, just learning things in narrow subject areas isn't that useful, even for the narrow subject areas. If you look at the, some of the great advances that have been made, mm. they tend to be either interdisciplinary or people using metaphors from one discipline and applying it to another. Mm -hmm. And you can't do that unless you know stuff outside your very narrow area. Mm. It was brought home to me when I've been revising my Psychology of Language book for the fifth edition. And the first edition, talking about language and the brain, it was pretty nice and simple. There were these regions of the brain called Broca's area, and Wernicke's area and connections in between and connections from the eyes and ears to these brain regions. And Broca's did production, Wernicke's did reception and semantic understanding. And it was nice and simple. <laughs> but it's now clear looking at all the many 
brain imaging techniques available, that is much more complicated than that. Producing language is more or less a whole brain process. Mm. Even the distinction between production and comprehension isn't very clear. When we speak, we predict, we use the comprehension process. When we comprehend, we use the production process. There is no simple, even the debate between bottom-up and top-down processing, I think, Mm. is way out of date because everything is involved. Mm. When you access a word, the meaning is to do with how we use the the object or the ideas. Mm. So when we think about a hammer, the part of the brain responsible for controlling the movement of a hammer becomes active. Mm. Everything is linked. And just thinking narrowly about it doesn't work anymore. Yeah, and it's a shame. It's a little bit like uh, the example of the atom, uh, visualizing the atom as this little mini universe or solar system with electrons spinning around in these nice um, parabolic uh, arcs around uh, around a central nucleus. And of course, you know, we know that to be basically a, a nice little picture, but it doesn't represent reality as far as we understand it so far. So I think yes. the nature of the mind being or the brain being a vast network or interconnected networks, a system of systems is how I think of it as well, um, is getting closer to the truth. And I think, yes, and I think that's where consciousness is particularly important for all psychology and neuroscience, because clearly our model of the brain and psychology and neuroscience at the moment is at best fundamentally incomplete in one respect, that it misses out any explanation of what it means to be us, me, or human. Mm. Uh, how inadequate is that, that the discipline just can't... And, and then maybe you say, well, maybe it's to do with quantum mechanics, and then a psychologist reads a quantum mechanics paper, and because they don't know much maths or physics, mm. it's completely incomprehensible to them. Uh, there are many examples of physicists who start talking about psychology, Mm. And it's clear that they just don't really know very much. And it's great oversimplification. Mm. So to, I think to make any progress, it will be in people who are conversive with m- at least two disciplines in a big way. Mm. That was one of the great things about cognitive science, that it did integrate linguistic psychology, anthropology, philosophy. And I think many of the advances that have been made over the last 20, 30 years are because people start knowing about more than one discipline. Mm-hmm. How would, do you think about language in terms of its uh, independent nature from thought? So this idea of an I language or a way that did, can we, um, in fact, I'll put it to you this way. I asked my wife the other day, can you think without language just to see what she would say? And um, she thought about it for a very brief period of time and said, well, of course, because, you know, you can have a broken heart or you can feel this, you can feel that. She looked at it from an emotional perspective, that this is a certain knowledge which is not expressed through language. And I thought that was quite a nice way of putting it. So um, I wonder if you can elaborate perhaps on that idea, maybe the Sapper wharf hypothesis, this idea that um, our uh, culture and our thoughts somehow interface with language and there's the distinction between an inner and an outer world as language ex- sort of expresses itself within us. Can I ask you a question first? And how do you define thinking? <laughs> yeah, well, put me on the spot. How do I define thinking? I suppose thinking is uh, something that I'm aware of doing. 
and that's a limited explanation. But I would say if I know that I'm thinking, and it sounds very Cartesian to say that, but uh, uh, if if the cognition that's taking place in you know the prefrontal cortex, then this is an awareness of thinking. Um, but it doesn't explain how thoughts actually arise in my consciousness. Where the hell do they come from? So uh, I might be thinking about my power bill or some very tangible thing that I have a reason to be thinking about. And then all of a sudden I'm thinking about uh, some memory from a long time ago or a song or a smell or whatever it might be that just emerges from nowhere. And I have no idea where that came from and what's going to show up next. <laughs> I think I think, I think thinking is is another vague concept which actually covers many things from being, and people use it to mean simply being aware of something mm. to problem solving, to retrieving memories. If I look at Bo, it's clear to me that he thinks he solves problems. <laughs> I can do things like hide, treat under a toy and, tell him stuff to obey orders and he will um, it's well known that birds particularly crows seem to be very clever and will solve problems there's a really good clip i don't think, I think it's the david attenborough one of crows in india i don't know whether you've seen it where they need to crack a nut which is too hard for their beaks so what they do is they drop it on the road and the cars run it over and crack it open for them. <laughs> the problem is, how do they avoid getting run over? Well, they do it at a pedestrian crossing and wait until the lights turn green to go and retrieve it. <laughs> and that's pretty smart. Yes. And it's difficult to think it could have just been, it's just chance or conditioning. They, they've, and also, once a bird has seen one bird solve it, do it that way they would imitate it so mm. there's a lot of cultural transmission of ideas even in animals too mm. even in animals i mean that, that sounds a bit patronizing doesn't it I mean, <laughs> what i mean is it is clear that it's not a uniquely human mm. or language related mm. task yeah i think the sapir wolf is one of those ideas the idea that language is determined or, or influenced by language it, Originally, it was it was fashionable for a while, and then it went out of fashion, particularly with behaviorism and, to some extent, cognitivism. But there is a lot of evidence now that the form of our language at least influences how we think. And on reflection, why should it be otherwise? Mm. Thinking in the sense of everything that's going on in the brain, or even if you just want to narrow it to all cognitive processes, at any one time it's happening in the brain, which is a complex network. And we know from embodied cognition that thinking about a tool activates the parts of the brain responsible for governing the movements that might be associated with that tool. And we know that from the colour naming studies, that having a name for a colour influences the accessibility of that color and so the brain is a complex network and at any one time what you're doing what you're thinking is being influenced by a lot of things and language is a particularly potent thing mm. because it makes things more accessible having the name for something just makes it easier to manipulate so 
in a complex interactive system, language is bound to influence the way we think. Mm. But there are thoughts. Some people say they think in images a great deal. I th I've reflected a lot about how I think. And like you, it's as though the language is more or less the tip of the iceberg of what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Thinking, a lot is going on behind the scenes. And I think of it a bit like the tip of an iceberg and that this big interactive network of there's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of activation spreading around the brain and ideas activating other ideas, new associations being made. And sometimes they reach consciousness. And for us, reaching consciousness also entails being made accessible to language. So we tend to associate labels with them. Mm. But there's no reason why that in turn shouldn't influence what we're thinking. Mm. There's, um, with your interest in dreams, maybe this will appeal to you, uh, this idea that, say, our brain or a huge part of what's taking place in our brain uh, we think of um, how powerful our brain is and how clever we are in, um, compared to, say, the anim other animals and so on. But in many ways, our brain is acting primarily as a filter because the amount of sensory information that's coming into it and the amount of memories and bits and pieces of experience that are sifting around and floating around in there, just looking for um, somewhere to express themselves in our consciousness, it's almost as though what we actually experience is just a very small window into that and uh when we are sleeping that um that uh, that wall that filter has seemed to be sort of removed to a certain extent and maybe this is how our dreams can be so nonsensical because we've just got this flurry of activity which we don't have the usual controls in place to sort of filter what's appropriate what sort of fits into the current environment and i wonder how much that if that is correct as a hypothesis or a, a concept, then how much that feeds into mental health illness in terms of is there some dysfunction in the ability of the brain to regulate and manage that type of filtering that we get overloaded with um, sensational memory or feeling experience that this is just operating at a suboptimal level than we'd desire it to be. And of course, it's a spectrum and maybe highly creative people are people who have that filter set at a certain level where they see and experience things other people wouldn't see, or maybe people who are at another end of the spectrum um, with personality disorders just have also different types of dysfunctions that are relating to the inability or different varying degrees of the ability of the brain to somehow filter that huge amount of data that's coming in from all directions, both within and without. Yeah, there's a lot there, but generally my answer is yes. <laughs> and first, the brain doesn't act like a filter. It is a filter. It's, if we think about the function of the brain, its evolutionary function more or less is to keep us alive and to enable us to breed and keep our offspring alive long enough for their genes to be passed on. But, of course, we've developed... Uh, somehow things have... Um, cascaded such that the brain now is much much more powerful than simply being able to serve that purpose and to some extent a lot of human existence is finding stuff that is meaningful enough 
to keep the brain active and occupied when we're not just getting food and breathing. At any one time, we're just not aware of very much at all. As you say, there's just a huge amount of information coming in through our senses, and most of it, uh, it isn't so much rejected as it certainly doesn't make awareness. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't make consciousness. Mm. It's as though consciousness is the bottleneck, the top, mm. the top of the pile. That might not be the right way of looking at it, but but it certainly seems that way to us. Mm. So at the moment, I'm really focusing just on you and what I'm thinking and what you said, and the rest of the world is, I'd say, I'm not aware of it. Mm. And there is a lot of active inhibition of that too, at least at the psychological level. Mm. That I'm, the brain or the mind, one has to be careful about exactly <laughs> which of those we mean, mm. is just keeping down a lot of stuff so that I can maintain focus on what you're saying and the ideas. In dreams, there's certainly Hobson's idea of activation synthesis is that dreams are random activity. It, what happens when the brain's executive processes switch off, things become randomly activated, ideas, percepts become randomly activated, and dreams then are a synthesis of this random activation, just trying to make sense of what happens when the brain is completely disinhibited. I don't think that fully makes sense because dreams do seem to have some structure and they do seem to have some function as well. Mm. I don't, it, it goes beyond just random, completely random activation. Mm. What the function is, is, isn't quite clear, I think, it's probably not Freud that they're serving as a some kind of gateway. Things that are unpleasant are being filtered out. But yes, dreams are. But dreams are pre pretty. Do seem to be pretty random. When it comes to mental illness, I think the closest parallel with dreams is with schizophrenia, where mm. there is a, a loss of a boundary between what we're conscious of and what we know we're conscious of and the sources of information. So it is as though it's dreaming while awake. Other mental illnesses, well, other psychopathologies, probably too. There is a, a lack of a boundary. So obsessive compulsiveness, there is no boundary, or reduced boundary between what we're aware of and what we can control, and what we can make sense of. Mm. We like to think of ourselves as pretty rational, mm. but in some mental illnesses, our lack of rationality becomes very apparent. That is probably a greatly simplified answer to your complex question. Yeah, well, it's more just uh, sort of thinking out loud, I suppose. Yeah, it's interesting thoughts. It's not every day you get to speak to a, a cognitive uh, psychologist about <laughs> these types of questions. Well, I have one last question on language. This was asking more about sort of nonverbal communication, and I worded it that as we focus so much on um, in the field of linguistics and so on on semantic syntax, speech, the way we actually articulate 
um, words discourse and discourse analysis and so on. And there's this sort of famous idea that nonverbal communication um, can, is, accounts for something like 70% of our of our conversations and the interpretations we have. And it's, again, this sort of unconscious or subconscious process that is taking place where we interpret tone and gesture, facial expressions, and all the social cues, which we don't get in a text message um as we all know, right, <laughs> when you've said something in an SMS or a, a WhatsApp and uh, somebody's got the wrong end of the stick. So I guess um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on nonverbal communication. I think the figure of 75% is a bit like this, we only use 10% of our brain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a figure. It must, on reflection, it is clearly wrong. Mm. Think about how much communication is carried out by... Uh, writing, for example. So it's restricted to face-to-face communication. Mm. And clearly non-verbal communication is important, but I don't think it's as important as the words, and it's not going to be 75% of it. Mm. It's going to vary from situation. In general, I think most of what you read and hear is a simplification. And non-verbal communication is important, but it's going to vary its importance depending on the context. There's a lot of stuff in lying, for example. Mm. People who lie usually have certain tells. They look ahead or don't look ahead, depending on who you read. And it's useful for that sort of thing. In this sort of communication, we're communicating face-to-face, and eye contact is important. Mm. It serves a function about whether or not, for example, I'm coming to the end of my turn and whether or not you're able to interrupt. Mm. To say that it's 75% of the meaning, I just don't know where that figure comes from. Mm. It can't be right. But it is important and non-verbal communication is going to be more important in some contexts than others. Mm. So how do you think about the uh, significance of non-verbal communication in terms of a part of an explanation of, say, the origins of language? How, um, To what extent do you think language could have developed from things, that an extension of gestures and uh, communication through visual means, which most certainly um, Homo sapiens or their predecessors possessed before they were able to have uh, long involved conversations? As you probably know, there are two schools of thought on that. There are, there's the school of thought that language directly emerged from nonverbal communication and the other school, which is that it didn't. <laughs> and I don't think there's sufficient evidence to be able to say. Mm. But again, I think that to some extent, just making that distinction is a bit artificial. Why can't it be a bit of both? Mm-hmm. Why can't it be that sometimes our gestures might have served as... The, a preliminary for being able to convey a certain sort of concept. Mm. Yeah, I was reading about uh, the relationship between gesture and speech and the synchronicity of it, and uh, even where they do studies where they slightly delay the sound. So if I was listening to myself speaking and that was just half a beat behind, my hand gestures, would I would start to slow down to try and synchronise my um, speech with the sound again. Uh, and my gesture will maintain synchronicity with my original speech. So it's as though the, the brain is controlling this synchronization 
even though I feel like I'm losing synchronicity, if you know what I mean. So there's a very close relationship. It's hard to tease the two things apart. Yes, again, psychology, perhaps particularly psycholinguistics, is full of dichotomies, either-or models. So there are two main ideas about the origin of gestures when speaking. First is that it's controlled by lexical access by retrieving words and the speech production system and that that you can't have you can't have gestures without accessing a word's meaning Mm -hmm. and the other is that it's more to do with action and again it's related to this idea that's become very fashionable of embodied cognition that ideas and words are embedded in the context of usage and action so that when we're producing words, we're also thinking of the actions that go with them. Mm. And I think, again, the answer is it's a bit of both. But gestures are clearly important. And they do seem to make comprehension easier as well. That people who, You can see when people are making gestures, that helps access the meaning of what they're saying. Yeah, there's almost a cue. They're like the punctuation that uh, fills in the the conversation blanks. You know, when I am doing this sort of thing, then uh, it's my exclamation mark, I should say, that um, pay attention, this is important, this bit right here. And we sort of go up and down with the rhythm of our language as well. The gestures really serve three, three different functions. The first is to help us negotiate the structure of the conversation. Mm. So when I'm ready to give up the floor, as we call it, and <laughs> stop speaking, I start to look away and you pick up on that, not necessarily consciously at all. Mm. The other is that they are really to do with the meaning of words we're saying. So there's sometimes we don't access the word immediately. I mean, you're probably familiar with the tip of the tongue state where we can't retrieve, we know we know a word, but we can't retrieve it immediately. Mm. But sometimes people can retrieve appropriate gestures or even when we're just having a temporary transient difficulty in accessing a word, the sound of a word, we can generate a gesture first. And sometimes you will see that people, listeners pick up on the gestures that are being made in those hesitations Mm. and sometimes helpfully give you the word that you're trying Mm. to remember. Mm. And the other is just for, for emphasis. You only have to watch old videos of Hitler just thumping away to see that for that gestures are just used to emphasise particular things. So there's three different uses of gestures at least, mm. and they're related and or related to some different extents to speech production system. Mm. And I, I guess without getting too much into the stereotypes, there's, there must be a cultural element to this because, of course, we think of, say, Italians or some sort of flamboyant speakers who are known for wildly gesticulating, and I'm not sure how much truth there is to that, some, I guess, but uh, clearly there's a component, whether that's learned through their environment, presumably, um, as opposed to people born in Italy just don't have a certain gene which makes them wildly gesticulate, whereas people born born in uh, the UK do not. So clearly it's a cultural environmental influence there as well. So. Yes, and there are big individual differences too. Some people, I think, mm. I probably don't gesture very much. Some people do a lot. Mm. So it's both individual difference and cultural. Yeah, sure. Um, you've, I read that uh, one of, I believe it was your 
was it your PhD thesis was on slips of the tongue? Is that correct? Yes. Yes. I think that's a pretty intriguing topic. I think a lot of people would find that quite interesting. I wonder if you could speak a little bit, bit about uh, your research sort of question and how you went about uh, answering it. Slips of the tongue or speech errors are when you intend to say something and it doesn't come out quite right. And it can apply at all levels of production. I'm just making a slight phonological error. Instead of saying dog, you might say tog, mm. substitute one sound for another. You might get the word wrong. You might say dog instead of cat. Or you might just jumble up the whole sentence. There are many ways in which speech production can go wrong. And looking at speech errors enables us, well, it tells us two things. First of all, the different levels of things that can go wrong suggest levels of processing in the speech production system. So it does seem to, there seems to be very real level of phonological representation, a level of lexical semantic representation, and a level of syntactic representation. Mm. And it also shows how these things operate. So one very simple idea that has come out of the analysis of speech errors, which still popular is that a lot of production involves generating a frame of what we're going to say and then filling in items as we go along mm. so just take a very simple sentence like the dog chases the cat that's the right way around we generate a syntactic frame which goes something like article noun verb noun and when we produce it, we just stick the right words into the appropriate slots. Now, sometimes things go wrong and we stick the wrong word into the wrong slot. Mm. But what is apparent from speech errors is that we never jumble up the types of slot. So we might say the cat chases the dog by mistake, mm. but we never say <laughs> dog the chases the cat. Mm. We don't mix up the article with the noun. And that suggests that there are fundamentally different processing vocabularies, that they're processed in different ways and different levels. And that's been that's backed up if you look at the neuro if the neurological data, there's a type of non-fluent aphasic has difficulty with function words, and fluent aphasics who have difficulty with the content words, the verbs and nouns. Mm -hmm. And so it tells us an awful lot about that. The way to collect speech errors is brilliant because it involves sitting in pub, talking, okay. and writing down errors mm. as they're made mm. rather than having to do experiments that involve complicated eye movement studies, mm. take hours, and quite often don't generate the results you want. Mm. So obviously simplifying it like that shows the problem with this sort of research which is that all ecologically valid, well, it's a bit of a pejorative statement, all spontaneous data collected like that, it's prone to observer bias. Is it the case that when I sit recording errors, I only notice certain sorts? Even worse, do I just record the ones that are consistent with what I want, mm. with my hypotheses? But generally, comparisons of error corpora suggest that they're pretty valid and that 
there is no great bias in it. People are more likely to notice errors involving words and they're more likely to notice errors at the start of words than ends of words. Hmm. But as one source of data, they are extremely useful. And in speech production, I think they were responsible for the creation of most of the early models of speech production, the fromkin gallup model. And also, I think I'm, I'm particularly, I've been particularly interested in them because I've realised that uh, I make a lot of them. I make more than average. And I think the reason for that is that I have what's called a general phonological deficit. If you listen to my speech, it's slightly disfluent. There are errors in it, more errors than average. Words are a bit slurred. And when I was young, I apparently no one could understand me. And when I was about six, I had to have speech therapy. Mm-hmm. My uncle stammered. My mother had difficulty speaking. So I think there is a genetic deficit of some sort. Mm-hmm. It isn't as pronounced as, say, the KE family, which is this famous family in, in London who have... Uh, big problems producing language, but there is something. And uh, I think it's to do with representation of non-words. If you give me a list of non-words to remember, I'll find it very difficult. I'm terrible, paradoxically, for someone who studies language at learning new languages. <laughs> French was by far my worst O-level. And again, it's strings of sounds that don't have meaning. Mm. Anything that has meaning, I'm fine with. Mm. But soon as the meaning is removed, I find it extremely difficult. Mm. Yeah, well, it speaks, so to speak, to the arbitrariness of um, language and the uh, the symbolic representation that we have for sounds and letters and um, the, the way we interact with languages, that it's just something you kind of build the, the rules for at a very young age. And if you miss the boat on that or you have some sort of deficit through genes or what have you, then then, um, you know, that that's sort of just something we have to cope with. But obviously it's specific to that domain, that faculty, uh, because you've written textbooks, novels. I mean, uh, clearly you have no issue with language. No, writing is fine. Anything where meaning, it's as though, some, and there is an idea of this in studies of people with aphasia too, that semantics acts as a glue. It enables us to tie bundles of sound together mm-hmm. so that we can process them better as wholes and remember them. Uh, there are things associated with it. I am very, I am quite, and my mother and my uncles are quite clumsy. So I tend to fall over a lot, which isn't particularly good news because of celiac disease too and osteoporosis. So falling over is the last thing you want to do. Mm. I'm hopeless at DIY, which is very convenient. Mm. And have some, I'd say it is bad enough to be a sort of dyspraxia. Mm, mm, interesting. Which is shared again by my mother. And I think that it's too much of a coincidence that mm. these things cluster together, as they do with people with dyslexia too. Mm. Many people with dyslexia tend to have dyspraxia too. Mm. Yeah, the slip of the tongue thing, um, just returning to that briefly, um, from a social perspective, it's interesting that it's not common that somebody will correct somebody when they make a slip of the tongue because we know what you mean, right? So even though you hear that, you go, oh, they got their words reversed or they said that word slightly incorrectly, um, it doesn't really change much. 
it's uh, it's technically incorrect, but the meaning is is clear as it would have been had they said it the right way around. So from a social perspective, whether it's because we um, don't want to embarrass the person by pointing it out, we don't want to be stick in the mud by saying, well, you actually should have said this, the grammar police, as it were, uh, or we also just don't care because we noticed it, but it doesn't make any difference. So we just move on. So I think it's the last of those mainly. What's the, mm. First, we just, as long as the meaning is obvious, we just don't notice a lot of mistakes people make. Mm. or We don't care about hesitations and disfluencies. All we care about is extracting the meaning. Mm. When people do query is when the meaning isn't clear. When a word is produced that, or someone says the opposite of what they meant, which is something mm. I tend to do a lot. <laughs> and it's a bit worrying in lectures, I think. I just worry about generations of students where I've told them that something is true when in fact I meant the opposite. So we don't worry unless the meaning is wrong. And I think that's very similar to children learning language too. Mm. There have a lot of studies that there are a lot of studies that show that adults don't correct children very much unless the meaning of what they say is incorrect. Early on, there was a lot of work showing that they don't correct syntax at all, they just correct meaning. Mm. And now we know that people do actually correct syntax a bit, but it's the, it's the meaning of what children say that's important. Mm. And as long as the meaning of what they say is apparent, that the truth value of what they're saying is correct, Adults don't bother that much. Mm. And I think it's exactly the same in speech overs. Mm. As long as the meaning has been conveyed, we just don't notice or care. Yeah, it's funny. I have two children, one just turned six, another one's two and a half or a bit over. And uh, the older one, she often says when she's finished, say she'll say, I'm done my peas. I'm done my peas rather than I've finished my peas. And yes. very rarely do we bother to correct her. And more recently, as she's getting a bit older, I'm starting to correct her a little more. Um, but then the two and a half year old, she's very good with language. And she came in the other day and uh, she said something to my wife. Um, she, came, My wife came home and I forget the question or how it came up, but my two and a half year old daughter said, daddy and I. And I thought, wow, that's that's pretty sophisticated for a two-year-old two to say, daddy and I, not me and daddy, you know? So yeah. Uh, but again, there's evidence showing that, on the whole, trying to correct children, particularly when they're young, doesn't make any difference. Mm. They just there are lots of examples of adults trying to teach children what to say, or even how to pronounce words, decomposing them phoneme by phoneme, and putting them together, <laughs> yeah. and then they still say what they're going to say anyway at the end. Correction doesn't work very well. Just all it does is create a social pressure and anxiety around speaking, probably because you're trying to get it right and you can't. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I guess that's um, maybe a point to to move into sort of the the other part of the conversation. And you know, you obviously have this massive long list of um, scholastic achievements and um, professional um, titles, and and I mean, it's it's wonderful. And the books you've written, and you've done all of these incredible things, and continue to do that, yet there is this um, other side that you've somehow managed to achieve all of that despite um, experiencing challenges with mental health. And I'm wondering if you'd be interested to speak a little bit about that and how that's uh, something you you deal with and manage in your life and how that can be an inspiration for other people as well to see that you can live a very productive and successful life um, while also 
dealing with um, challenges of mental health. Yes, I think that is an optimistic way of putting things. <laughs> I have reflected on life and mental health problems. Just to summarise, I've diagnosed with uh, depression, obsessive compulsiveness, uh, possibly narcissistic personality disorders, just you, you name it. The only thing I'm pretty certain I haven't got is schizophrenia. And I think any achievement is very much in spite of these things. Mm. Depression, I think, is the worst. A little bit of obsessive compulsiveness is good for scientists, I think. And you check your data, you don't make mistakes, you go over things, you proofread. So a little bit of being obsessive is good. But to the extent where it interferes with life, which is what I've experienced, particularly when I was young, it's just disruptive. Depression is just awful because it stops you doing stuff. There is some evidence, as you probably know, that that uh, bipolar disorder, particularly in the up phase, is good for creativity. And there are indications that many artists, more artists and mathematicians than you would expect mm. have suffered from bipolar disorder. But pure depression is just debilitating. And so I often ruminate on how much more I would have done if I had not been depressed or obsessive compulsive. Mm. So what we've seen from you is really just a small version of what you could have achieved. Is that what you're trying to say? Well, you, you've yes, done, I think done pretty so. well. Yeah. And I think that's sad. Mm. Oh, uh, for sure. And to some extent, it's also true of background because I came from a working class family and my father left when I was young and we had our house and belongings repossessed. And so I grew up in a council estate in the middle of nowhere. I'm not saying that as a sob story, but rather then I was lucky enough to go to grammar, selective grammar school. But And then the first person in my family to go to university. And the d disadvantage is that of being working class or underprivileged is that you just don't have the cultural information Mm. that all the other people had. You go, to, you go to university, if you were the first one in your family, you just have no idea about what to expect or how to cope or even how to learn. You don't know about living by yourself. None of your relatives have any idea. And it's just makes it's that aspect of deprivation that makes life more difficult. Well, one of them, I'm sure... Deprivation makes life difficult in many ways, but just not having the cultural context for how to improve yourself is a major influence that is greatly overlooked, I think. Mm. And what so is yes, it is very much everything is in spite of. Mm. And I think that is probably true for many people with mental illness. Mm. I have spoken to many and they have all said the same thing, that it it, it is a a curse and they would have achieved much more if they hadn't suffered from what they have been suffering from and, and what sort of strategies have you used over the years in terms of managing this is it sort of using pharmacological therapies or cognitive behavioral therapies or 
what strategies have you found effective, if any? Uh, drugs have definitely helped. Antidepressants, SSRIs have helped a lot, mm. as have atypical antipsychotics because they reduce the anxiety. In some ways, anxiety is the worst thing because it's quite difficult to... Exp- you can more or less convey the idea of what it is to be severely depressed by saying, imagine if you've had some very bad news and or imagine you're a bit down and it's a hundred times worse or a thousand times worse. But anxiety, it's much more difficult to convey the feeling of what it is like just to be hyper-anxious mm. a lot of the time and how that gets in the way of doing things because you just can't, you just can't focus on anything. So I have tried all the strategies that are recommended and some of them work. Deep breathing, perhaps. But a lot of them don't. Mm. So my main strategy is waiting, waiting for things to get better because I've learned that things will be maybe better tomorrow or even this evening. You know, your mood varies greatly through the day. Mm. And I've learned to go with the flow a bit that if I feel very depressed in the morning, I have a afternoon nap and it might be completely different when I wake up. Mm. So I've tried drugs and I've tried cognitive behavioural therapy. I did have, I suppose, a form of dynamic therapy for a few years, which I did find very useful because it helped put my life in context Mm. and understand why things, why I reacted the way I did sometimes. But in terms of actually managing to live a better life, I'm not sure... It's helped that much. Mm. But I think what I have learned is that things are transient and therefore not to despair too much. Mm. You can have depression, but there's no need to have meta-depression. Yeah, I think that's good advice. Um, In an early episode, I I wrote uh, number three or four on negativity. I talk about more or less the same thing. And for me, it was this awareness that uh, perhaps as someone of my sort of more technical background and aviation being a pilot, I like to uh, rationalize things, I guess, as stereotypically as men tend to do sometimes. And this idea, the knowledge that there's neurotransmitters in our minds and our brain, sorry, that are um, responsible for a lot of this balance, this chemical balance. And if that gets out of whack, then this can seriously influence how we feel. And there's nothing wrong. There's nothing um, sinister or there's nothing real about it in the sense. Yes, of course it feels real, but the world is no worse today than it was yesterday. It's just the chemicals imbalance in your brain is making you feel and see things differently and with time and possibly medication uh, this balance will shift and once you start to learn the the triggers for you whether it's diet sleep alcohol um, social activities different things which maybe upset the apple cart in terms of that balance and and there's always going to be things we don't understand we can't account for but when you can get the rhythm of yourself and tap into your own conscious awareness and really think carefully about that on a very fine-grained level and start to optimize your life and know this is something that I have to live with, I have to accept, but I can set myself up for success within the constraints of this illness, I suppose. By And we tend to do that naturally, right? We shy away from 
um, high pressure situations or social situations if we get social anxiety or, you know, we'll avoid. But PTSD, of course, is is one of the key symptoms is this avoid, avoidance of others and to the point where you just hibernate and become a hobbit and, and this can be quite dysfunctional as well. So we need to be careful, but also I think uh, understanding um, how we work and the things that will help us through these these times as, as quick as we can within you know the limits of the condition. Yes, I agree with all of that. But I think sometimes uh, you talked about triggers, but sometimes changing the context radically can help. Mm-hmm. It's as though that will jerk you out of your current mood. Distract you. The problem <laughs> is, of course, that you know, when you're feeling very depressed, the last thing you want to do is go out and talk to people. Mm-hmm. But if you can manage to do something that just changes the stimulus conditions around you a bit, mm-hmm. I think that is effective sometimes. Yeah, I think from a public awareness point of view, which is there's been a big drive in this in the last few years, and I, I think you wrote in a blog post um, recently or a year or two ago about how um, I don't know if you use the words everyone seems to be depressed these days, but certainly depression is something that's become somewhat ubiquitous. It probably always was, but we're talking about it in a different way now. The stigma is slowly being removed from from these conditions, and um, when we have that awareness that so for myself speaking personally if i am consumed with rumination on a certain thing it could be um, rational or not um, whether it's uh, something at work or my private life whatever it might happen to be that i'm just stuck on i'm not feeling good about as soon as i talk to somebody and just get that off my chest the thing lifts off my shoulders it makes a huge difference the the problem is you don't want to burden somebody with your self-pity, your issues, your problems. You know, no one's got time to listen to someone else's bullshit. We've got enough of our own to deal with, right? So maybe this is where therapy and counsellors and, and so on are, are useful because these are the people that you pay to listen. Exactly. They get paid they get paid for listening <laughs> to other people's music. Uh, and the great shame is that there just aren't enough. Mm, that's right. Certainly uh, in the UK. But if we, without, and, and there's no expectation of, this is the, the key point, I think, is you might go to a therapist or a, a clinical psychologist for advice and some strategies. That's one thing. But a lot of the time, you just need someone to listen and make you feel that it's okay to be feeling and thinking the way you are and maybe just tease out a couple of irrational things that are snowballing and just put a stop to them and just snap you out of that funk and, uh, if it's a close friend or somebody you feel comfortable sharing that with, then I think that as a society, certainly in say Western society where this has become to come to the fore um, more recently in, in recent times, that as to be a good friend, to be a good colleague or whoever you are in someone's life is to be able to be that sounding board for people. You don't have to offer answers. You don't have to freak out that this person is giving you too much information. Um, we need to get beyond that, that um, feel more comfortable, not to say you should just turn to the nearest stranger and pull your heart out, but at an appropriate time, I think people, particularly men, um, need to um, be there for each other and, uh, and allow people just to work through that, get things off their chest and throw in a few sort of positive sentiments from here and there. Yeah. 
Yes, men are, of course, notorious about not talking about their feelings. The problem is that with uh, clinical depression and, and anxiety, it has mostly no content. You could be down, I mean, you might be down because of some life event and you have feelings about that, you can talk about that. But uh, a lot of the time, my depression isn't about anything. It's just there. Mm. I'm not anxious about something. It's just this anxiety, this feeling of anxiety. So in a sense, a lot of the time, for me at least, there is nothing to talk about Mm. other than the state itself and how unpleasant it is. Mm. And it can be good talking to someone who knows that. So to some extent, talking to other people who have been severely clinically depressed is useful because you know they know what you are talking about. Mm. And if they're not depressed at that time, again, you know there's some hope. But a lot of the time, these things are content-free. I guess that makes it uh, one of the challenges and and certainly one that makes it distinctive from the transient sort of periods of or low points that everybody has from time to time versus um, major depressive disorder or something that's more um, clinical in nature. Or pathological yes it's a big distinguishing feature mm. yeah well thanks for sharing your, your thoughts on that and uh as i sort of get to the end of our conversation um i guess i'd like to just talk a little bit about your career and the transition more specifically that you've made um from being uh, sort of a dean of head of faculty to an emeritus professor and how that transition has gone for you you've been out of the the good game for a few years i I guess but how um have you found say was that very freeing for you to give you the space and time to write the books and follow your dreams as it were it's literally yes it's it's been absolutely brilliant Mm. wonderful in every way apart from perhaps not having as much money as i used to have (laughs) i i realized in part that work was making me ill mentally ill Mm. Um, the job interacting with other people not being in control of my life and destiny and just the the stress it is extremely stressful being head of department and dean particularly when finances get tight and there's restructuring and possibility of laying people off it just really got to me and I think if I just carried on without doing anything I really would have been at risk of suicide. And I realised that with the help of a therapist. Mm. And so I decided just to spend my time doing what I want to do. And that has been extremely liberating and wonderful in every way. I can't think of any disadvantage. For anyone who can do it, I recommend it. Mm. Yeah, well, I know there are some sure. people... And it is, it is the case that some people are more at risk of death when they retire. Mm. I don't know, retire, yeah, retire, because their, their meaning, their purpose has been taken away. Mm. But that hasn't been the case for me. I have now been able to do more or less just what I want to do, which is writing, thinking, reading, mm. and trying to keep fit enough to be able to do those things. Mm. No, but in, in some ways I'm better off because I have more time for reading and thinking. So yeah, yeah. I probably know. Whereas when you're being head of department and dean, it's just 
so much time is going on either trivial tasks, mm. pointless tasks, or writing reports. Every year you'd have to write a new five-year plan, mm. which made no reference to the previous five-year <laughs> plan. Well, yeah. What a waste of time. Yeah, right. and, uh, and so now I have more time, so I'm a better professor than I was when I was head of department. Mm. Do you still do some lecturing then? Do you consult back to the university? or No, no. That, I, I think it, I do give talks still because I gave talks before COVID came along because I do have always enjoyed teaching mm-hmm. in the sense of lecturing. Mm-hmm. I don't think I was ever very good at small group teaching, mm-hmm. but I was noticed I was the reverse of most academics who didn't like it's a bit of a hierarchy in Britain. First years are huge, second years a bit smaller, third years smaller still, and in the fourth year in Scotland you'd have very small group teaching. And most academics really like the small group teaching. I liked the big introductory lectures with three hundred students listening on every word, telling them interesting things mm-hmm. about introductory psychology. Mm-hmm. That's the bit I liked me- most. So I was just about to say mist, which was a blend <laughs> of best and most. Mm-hmm. And it's the bit I miss most. But I do I give talks mm-hmm. here and there, mm-hmm. and I really enjoy those when I do. That's one thing I miss, mm-hmm. is the not giving as many talks as I used to. Well, maybe after this podcast comes out, you'll uh, you'll be filling stadiums and uh, <laughs> having crowds. I hope so. To hear My fees... Funny. My fees are very reasonable. <laughs> um, I was. I do envy those acad- those academics who have made a trend, like Stephen Pinker, who mm. is so famous that he needs an agent and yeah. only talks and writes and think. And that yeah. that is enviable. The superstar scientist. Yeah. You know, how this? Uh, I guess that's. You know, there's always... I want my own television series. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if any any producers out there, I'm available. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think people love this. You know, in recent years, when you look at the rise of documentaries um, and the rise of popular science, um, you know, there's definitely a place for it because people are much smarter than we bloody gave them credit for. The problem with television, of course, has been we've had 25-minute chunks of bullshit forced down our necks, Coronation Street and Neighbours and all of this stuff, and we didn't have any other choice, and we thought that we liked it, and it stopped us from thinking about our own dull and miserable lives. And then suddenly Netflix came along where we can digest as much information as we like and the internet and Wikipedia and all of these things that have grown the sort of pop culture of interest in science. And um, in fact, that was a, a question that I had for you in a way that everyone's an amateur psychologist these days. We see a meme, we we think we understand each other and ourselves. And uh, But people are interested in also podcasts or another example where you have long form conversations, which people will listen to the whole thing because they find it interesting. We don't have to squeeze a soundbite into just um, the the slot because that's the national news program. So people are getting information um, from different sources and they're far more interested in these topics than we might have given them credit for outside of academia. Yeah. And as I said earlier, it goes against the traditional educational model of very narrow disciplines. Mm. You spend half an hour doing English, then half an hour doing maths, and they're completely different subjects. Mm. University, you spend your life doing psychology, 
and you mustn't spend any time doing a bit of quantum mechanics. Mm. But in actual fact, it would be quite useful. I think also I, I, people are more intelligent than they're given credit for. And you can see that even within documentaries, they have so many producers, directors think that the subject material itself isn't interesting enough unless you have some kind of gimmick. Mm. Strange camera angles, focusing on people's hands doing funny things, <laughs> loud thumping background music. Most mm. people find these very distracting and don't want them. And yet the producers carry on putting it out. Mm. It amazes me. Don't you ever listen to feedback? Yeah. In fact, in general, I think most people, a lot of people just don't lack or don't for some reason spend time at the meta level reflecting about their performance and their goals and how they're being attained and what they could change about their lives to do better. Mm, yeah those are different and again i think that's partly the failing the education system where people are taught but they're not taught how to think Mm. well this um, brings me to really a final question uh where so when somebody hears the title professor you know there's only a handful of people can make this claim this is an impressive height to uh, attain in one sort of academic development and it makes me curious about how that feels from your perspective in the sense that to be worthy of such a title um, means that you have command of a lot of knowledge or a very detailed understanding of some specific frame of knowledge. And how do you maintain that in the sense that is there an imposter syndrome that's associated with that? And then is there a and obviously there's an individual difference associated with this. So I'm asking your perspective perhaps, but to maintain that in terms of fields are shifting, as we talked about, you know, the understanding of consciousness or language or all of these fields, which you may be a professor of, um, if you don't keep up, then you're not going to know as much as you think you do or you used to, or people expect you to, right? So how much time, uh, and you answered this a little before about the responsibilities in your previous job, but how much time goes into maintaining a state of the art in terms of your knowledge of a field, which, or, and do you feel obligated to do that? Or is it part of that natural drive for knowledge, which you had, which got you to that place in the, in the first instance? Yeah. Um, when I, I was quite lucky in getting a, a personal chair in psychology fairly young, but I remember it very clearly. It's a long process. Mm. of evaluation but it was uh, the best one of the best days of my life mm-hmm. and i am very proud of it and it means an awful lot to me mm. but i am lucky in that i don't make and i've never really made a distinction between work and non-work being academic and non-academic and i'm lucky in that i really enjoy that i like learning new things and writing more than anything else. Mm. And so keeping up with knowledge, both in psychology and more generally, just comes more naturally to me than many tasks that other people do. Mm. So I slightly resent having to do the dishwasher. (laughs) 
change the bedding and things like that because they eat into time when I could be reading, writing and thinking. Mm. And I just love doing that more than anything else. Mm. I think Bo here would be a better dog if he learned to fill the dishwasher occasionally, <laughs> giving me more time. Even I am quite keen on, I'm very keen on diet in the sense of eating healthily and exercise. But even then I see those as just, I don't enjoy it in itself. I don't enjoy exercise in itself, but I do enjoy the fact that it means my brain is clearer more oxygen is coming to the brain and I'm going to live longer having more time for thinking and writing. Mm. So to that extent, it's just part of who I am. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably true of a of many academics too. Mm. And many people, perhaps you, you just thinking and reading is just such a core part of who we are mm. that I can't imagine any alternative mm. and I don't want an alternative existence. Yes, as much as I try to convince my wife I haven't got time to do the dishes because I'm too busy thinking, she uh, yeah. she won't let me, yeah. off, let me off the hook so easily. I know, sadly, <laughs> it doesn't work like that, does it? They don't do themselves. Yes. But, and unless, I think, unless you have that feeling, you won't want to put in the time hmm. to do research and thinking and writing. Now, writing a book is pretty onerous, and there are even times when even I, particularly at the end of revising it, just get really fed up with it. Mm. And unless mm. you have that kind of real drive to want to do it, you're not going to do it. Mm. You're not going to be a professor unless you have the motivation mm. to understand stuff. Right, last question, I promise. So you've written a wonderful book called The Psychology of the Weather, I believe. Is that The Psychology of Weather? Yes. And... Yeah. Uh, if there's one thing, um, small talk uh, is generally begins and ends, or certainly begins with the weather. And uh, you've written a book on the psychology of it. Can you give me perhaps a couple of bullet points about what that book is about? And is it anything to do with how the weather is seemingly intrinsic to our social order? Yes, because the weather is always there. And certainly in Britain, it's always slightly strange it's variable i look out right now in scotland and there's dense freezing fog which is very it's actually quite rare for this part of scotland mm. so if i meet my next door neighbor i mean it's probably no point to them talking about quantum mechanics and consciousness but i can <laughs> say a bit nippy outside isn't it and they can say yeah we don't get this fog and it's it's instant social bonding mm. But there are many ways in which weather affects us even more directly. There's the relationship, for example, between violent crime and temperature, which is vaguely U-shaped. That is, when it's cold, people stay indoors. When it's too hot, they just lounge about in shorts, complaining that it's too hot. But if it's quite hot, they get out, the young people, and have some good fights in the evening. Mm. Even political regimes are linked to the ambient temperature around the tropics, the, um, the, the, there are fewer democracies and more um, totocracies. Is that the right word, totocracies? Autocracies. Yeah. Autocracies, yes. So everything, all aspects of behaviour are affected by the weather. Humidity affects us, even wind direction, in subtle ways. Mm. 
and in not so subtle ways too. Mm, fascinating. Well, thank you so much. Well, for I'm writing time. my next book. Oh. My next book now in progress is that was a slightly technical book on psychology and behavioural fixing the weather, mm. and I'm now writing a book on a popular book on the weather, behaviour, and appreciation of nature. Because there has been, in recent years, a lot of research showing that nature is good for us. It improves mental health. It improves health generally. That Spending 15 minutes outside just contemplating the trees with blue sky is truly uplifting. Mm. And I've noticed that with myself. That I take my dog out for a little walk and I feel much better. Mm. Yes, I think everybody and can relate to that, that's for sure. Well, thank you so much for sharing an hour and a half of your time with me. It's been really enjoyable. It's been a pleasure. I'm sure there's much more to talk about. I'm, I, too, am very keen on maximising performance and on ways of making ourselves happier, more productive and longer living. My goal is never to die. <laughs> well, let's uh, hope you succeed. Which isn't quite out of the question. Yeah. You know, that we can, I think, ways of uploading ourselves mm. to computer probably will happen sometime but sadly not in my lifetime yes and the question being will it still be you of course <laughs> oh i think it will be mm. well perhaps uh, as we sign off would you mind telling people how they can get hold of some of your work or follow what you're doing and uh, and and access your books my name is trevor harley as in the motorbike and street and if you go to amazon i have an author page but I also have my own website, which is very simply www.trevorhardy.com. And it has my email address there and ways of contacting me. And it's all very simple. And that's how I got hold of you for this conversation. So I do try and do try and maintain it. And there's plenty on consciousness, mm. the weather, language and mental illness it's all there well i can say that i've read your book uh, talking the talk which has been extremely useful in my preparation for this sort of podcast series on language i'm doing i've been chipping away at the um, psychology of language textbook you've written and look forward to the fifth edition of that and as my journey through the field of psychology sort of starts to um, mature a little more uh, it's i'm learning about the areas that I'm interested in. And so works like yours, I think for myself, and I'm sure a lot of other students have been extremely useful to refine their thinking on topics and, and start to narrow it down, even though we're, we're trying not to be too narrow, but it's also helps to um, for you to understand the specific interest areas that you might have as well. Yes. The thing is to know about all trades and uh, be master or mistress of some of them. Yes. But it certainly helps to know what you don't know as well mm. and to know that you, what all these other areas are. And you just don't know. Well, as we talked about earlier with metaphor and creative thinking, you don't know what might be useful knowledge for something later down the line. Mm. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I've really enjoyed this. Um, yeah, well, maybe we can do it again sometime. I'll uh, keep in touch with you. Yeah, pleasure. And, There's uh, a lot more to talk about yeah. in the world. Well, once your your book comes out, the consciousness one, well, it is out uh, imminently, then I'll make my yep. way through that and uh, and I'm sure I'll, I'll come up with a whole bunch more questions that we can digest uh, at a later stage. I hope so. It wouldn't serve its function if it didn't, which I think is wrong. Thank you, Trevor. I will keep in touch with you. All the best. Okay, pleasure. Bye.
Bye bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. You can find us on Facebook at the Here and Now podcast or Twitter at Here Now podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to keep up to date with all of the latest episodes. And if you want to support the podcast, you can find us on Patreon or leave a review at the Apple Podcasts app. You can reach out to me via the pages or email theherenow at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. It's one of the um, most frustrating things I've found about this sort of interview format. I guess it would be a lot easier in person is um, having to keep track of where I'm going next, but also pay attention to what you're saying. And I find often on the listen back, I go, shit, that was actually really interesting. I wish I'd asked him that because I'm only half listening at the time because I'm too busy thinking about mm. a what I'm going to say next or the next question and uh, so on. So um, that's that's the challenge with this type of somewhat contrived conversation is it's not quite as natural as it otherwise could be i think i think you do very well you don't make many or any speech errors and i find are annoyingly fluent